started somewhere. And so, God, we thank you for your faithfulness for 35 years to have established this local church in this place and as the community has grown up all around it to continue to shine as a light for you. God, I, I thank you for probably hundreds and hundreds, countless numbers of lives uh, that have been positively impacted by you through the ministry of this church over three and a half decades. So many of those people still here, still a part of our church. Others have moved on to glory. Others have moved on out of the area. But God, if we were able to list and chronicle the impact that you have had in the lives of people through this church, the impact would be amazing and widespread. And we thank you for that because that is you in your grace and your faithfulness impacting people. And God, as we celebrate that and thank you for who you are and who you have been, we turn toward our present and our future with eager anticipation, recognizing that uh, unless you come back, God, our work has hardly begun, and that is an exciting prospect. Father, I pray that in the years ahead, in the months, and even the weeks ahead, God, you would increase the effectiveness of Harvest Community Church at making disciples of Jesus clearly pointing men and women to who you are, explaining the truth of your character, demonstrating the truth of your character as we and our own characters are being made more like you, that we in turn might serve people around us, love people around us in your name and explain your love to them, especially in the death and resurrection of your son, that more and more men and women all around us might find eternal life and begin the journey of following you. God, we pray that we would see dozens of people come to first-time faith in Christ over this next year here at Harvest. We pray that we would see dozens and dozens of people make significant steps of growth in their faith, that you would change our thoughts about you that are wrong, that you would release the things that we hold on, that we would confess and be open to you with our sins and receive cleansing and forgiveness, and that people would find life. And lastly, this morning, Father, I pray that every person here, uh, those of us that have been here since the beginning of this church, all the way to those who just walked through our doors, perhaps for the first time just these past few weekends, every person precious to you, I pray that every single person here would experience you more because of how we follow you as a church. God, take our efforts and use us to glorify your name, transform people's lives, and spread your kingdom in our city and around this world. We thank you for your faithfulness and pray that you would glorify yourself in and through us that much more. These things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You can have a seat. Thank you, team, for leading us so faithfully. Appreciate you guys. They will be back to uh, help close our service uh, lately. Uh, just got a quick shout out, Albert, as you're hobbling down that stair. Dude, it's good to see you back. He's been out with some foot stuff lately. And uh, when you've got members of your family that have to drift away for a while and come back, it's awesome. So Albert, it's good to see you here, brother, this morning with us. I want to start this morning by asking a question, and it's one more for you to think about than to answer right away, but it is a legitimate question. And this is a question everybody can answer, whether you've been a Christian for your whole life or whether you're just like trying to figure this whole God and religion thing out for the first time and you don't think you know anything or anywhere in between. And the question would simply be this, <clears throat> what is the goal of the Christian life? What do you think? What, what's the goal? In other words, like, what's it all about? 
most of us could probably mention things that probably should be part of the Christian life. Even if you're not super familiar with the Bible, it probably wouldn't surprise you if I said, well, Christians should, you know, go to church, and a Christian should pray, and a Christian should be a good person and seek to live a good life. We could probably list a lot of things that we would all agree on that are sort of elements of the Christian life, but the question is, like, what's it all about? Like, is that, is that the point? If somebody who knew nothing about Christianity asked you, what is it all about, what would you answer? While you're thinking about that, um, this question is not just a theoretical it's very real. It's a question that Christians and an entire churches full of Christians ask all the time. Back in the 1990s and the early 2000s, Willow Creek Community Church in Illinois was probably the best known church in the nation. Um, it was gigantic. It attracted tens of thousands of people, not only to its weekend worship services, but to the many, many other programs and activities that they put on. They were the gold standard that churches around the country sought to emulate. Uh, During part of this time, I was an associate pastor at a large church here in the Portland area that was seeking to model much of its ministry, like so many other churches were, on Willow Creek. Their philosophy was basically to create a, a slate of programs and activities that would attract people to participate, and if they did that in a biblically faithful way, that participation would lead to spiritual growth. This is how they themselves, I'm summarizing it in my words, but they themselves said this. Now, in 2007, Willow Creek did a comprehensive self-evaluation, and to their credit, they published the results because they knew everybody's looking to us to figure out how to do church well. So we need to talk about our strengths and we need to publish the realities too. So to their credit, they let everybody know what they discovered. And as one article from the periodical Christianity Today at the time put it, having put so many of their eggs in the program-driven church basket, you can understand their shock when the research revealed that in the language of one of their key pastors, quote, increasing levels of participation in these activities does not necessarily predict whether someone is becoming more a disciple of Christ. It does not predict whether they love God more or love people more, end quote. In other words, spiritual growth doesn't just happen by becoming dependent on an elaborate church program, this again is the article, but rather through age-old spiritual practices of prayer, Bible reading in relationship with other Christian people. That's how the article ended. You see, the problem wasn't that Willow Creek Community Church or any other church uh, had programs. Of course they did. They they had worship services. We're participating in a church program right now. We gather every Sunday to sing and to preach and to pray. It wasn't that they, the problem wasn't that they had small group Bible studies and other church programs. These These things support the salvation of and the ongoing spiritual growth of people. Uh, As one set of authors put it in a book called The Trellis and the Vine, so much of what churches are trying to do is, you can think of it like um, growing vines. If you've ever tried to grow grape vines or or a vine like rosebush or something, you might build a trellis to support that vine so it can grow over an archway or over a patio. The trellises are necessary to support the vines, but of course you don't build a trellis for its own sake. You build it so the vines will grow. And the question is, in a church, what's a trellis and what's a vine? A trellis is the programs and the activities of the church, so what's the vine? What is Christianity really about? 
And the Bible answers that question pretty clearly. The vine is God-driven personal transformation. God-driven personal transformation. That's what we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks together, starting this morning. Whoa, that was for dramatic effect. Um, We're going to talk about this. The Bible has a word for this God-driven personal transformation, and a word it calls it discipling. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. Let me just point out real quick, though, that that this is unique amongst world religions and worldviews. Christianity says something no other world religion really says. You see, the Bible doesn't just call people together to engage in a set of religious practices. Do this at this time. Do this during this season, and then you're a good Christian. Nor does it just call people to live good moral lives. Rather, the heart of Christianity is to pursue and experience God and participate in his mission by helping others do the same. And that's what this word discipling means. A disciple is somebody who's following Jesus, seeking to know him, become like him. And discipling is when we do that and we help one another do the same thing. I want to echo my excitement about our 35th anniversary celebration tonight. I really want to encourage you to uh, see if you can be here because at this stage in the life of our church, we are refocusing with a fresh energy on the heart of God's calling on us to be a discipling and disciple-making church, to use the language of the Bible. So for the next seven Sundays starting this morning, we're going to kind of see what the, go to the Bible to see what it says about how, what that means and, and, and how God wants us to pursue it because the Bible does give us instruction on that. And then tonight what we're going to do is sketch out a handful of specific strategies and activities we are going to begin pursuing as a church right now. And we want you to come be part of it. We want this to be a church-wide conversation as we all lock arms and pursue this together. So hope to see you tonight at 545. Our passage this morning, we want to begin by just looking at this whole idea of what it means to be a disciple and some of what the Bible has to say about that. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to Philippians chapter 3, which is the passage that Randy read earlier. The New Testament book of Philippians chapter 3. And what I want us to see this morning is, is three key things from this paragraph. We're going to focus particularly on verses 12 through 16. One short paragraph uh, written in the first person by the Apostle Paul, who was running around and planting churches and establishing them in the first century and helping Christians understand what their mission was. And he explains a lot of what he's doing in this particular paragraph. In a typical Apostle Paul way, the paragraph is short. It is also dense. There's a lot in here. So what we're going to do this morning is see three key things from this paragraph. Let me read it from start to finish, then we'll back up. Verses 12 to 16. The Bible says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. 
And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word for us. This is kind of like, a, if I was a, a grammar um, or, or writing teacher, I'd probably love this paragraph because it's like the classic, you know, three-paragraph essay that I was taught to write when I was in, like, high school. You know, thesis statement, supporting point, supporting point, supporting point, conclusion, right? That's exactly how this paragraph breaks down. Verse 12 kind of, he says everything he wants to say. And then for the next few verses, he elaborates on it. And in verse 12, we see three things that I want to draw our attention to in this passage. First of all, there's a clear goal Secondly, there's a new commander. Thirdly, there's a driving passion that really helps capture what the Christian life is all about. Let's look at each of these just briefly. First of all, notice that there is a very clear goal that is stated in this text for the Apostle Paul. He says right away, not that I have already obtained this. Of course, this refers to something else he's been saying before. Uh, If you back up, to the way he ended the previous paragraph, this refers back to verse uh, 11. In fact, to get a whole sentence, we should back up a little bit more than that. He says in verse 10 that his goal is that he might know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrections, that he might share in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's The this, that's what he's talking about. That I would know Jesus and experience a death like his so that I might experience resurrection like his forever, that's what I'm after. And so he starts our paragraph saying, not that I think I'm there yet. I've not yet arrived. So the first thing you notice is that there's a clear goal. When somebody talks about not having arrived yet, they obviously have some idea of where they're trying to go. Right? The basic idea here is that as, as somebody who's put his faith and trust in Jesus, the Apostle Paul knows that he will rise from the dead someday. He will be fully transformed and sinless. And he will spend eternity in heaven with God. Now he wants to experience as much of that heavenly, God-soaked, sin-free lifestyle right now as he possibly can. That's his goal. Hence that word perfect. Uh, The idea means complete. Like I'm I'm not lacking anything. He says, I know what that life would look like and I'm not there yet. I'm not complete. I'm not totally experiencing that. That's what I'm striving for. So what's the point? It's simply this. The Apostle Paul is a work in progress. He's a work in progress. He's not done. He still needs to reach. The ambition he's pursuing has not been fully realized yet. The space in between where he currently is in his life and where he knows he needs to be, that space between here and there is what defined the whole course of his life. He knew where he was going, he knew he wasn't there, and he was all about getting there. Knowing where there is helped him assess his life. Helped him to figure out, am I on track? How am I doing? Why do I get up out of bed in the morning? How about you?
are you living your life with that kind of intentionality? Like you know where you're going and you're striving to get there. Actually, even as I ask that question, let me pause that and ask another question. Does that seem like a heavy question to you? It kind of does to me at some level. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I probably feel like there's a lot of things I should be doing better in my life and you just gave me another big one to think about, right? I mean, it can be sort of like this, this heavy sort of ominous question. The interesting thing is for the Apostle Paul here, it was clearly an energizing question, not an ominous one. Rather than seeing this as another kind of set of things he should be doing better, he saw it as the one thing that makes sense of all the rest of the stuff. I know where I'm going. I know who I am. I know what my life is all about. It was clearly an energizing thing. And you know, all of us at some level ask that question at one time or another in our lives, don't we? Sometimes very intentionally, other times not. Uh, Our culture even has a common phrase for this for some people. Anybody ever heard of a midlife crisis? Right? It's not only restricted to midlife, but it's like we call it that because often somewhere in the middle of life, people kind of get to a place where they realize, man, whether I've been thinking about it intentionally or not, I've invested my life in achieving certain things and pursuing certain things, and now I'm at a place in my life where maybe I've even attained some of them, and I'm not really happy, and I'm starting to doubt whether I'm even on the right path. I'm starting to doubt whether I am living with intentionality or if I am, if I'm intending the right things. That can be a very disconcerting process. It's a healthy question. What is your there? The difference between here and there. What what would you say you are intentionally pursuing? See, what the Bible is getting at here is that the most satisfying journey starts with having the best destination in view. So, how do you answer that question? Where where does a person's there come from? Thankfully, Scripture gives us some pretty clear indications there on that question as well. That leads to our second point. He not only had a clear goal, the Apostle Paul had a new commander. I, I say new because the commander, that is Jesus himself, was not always the Apostle Paul's commander. He had had a significant conversion experience detailed in Acts chapter 9. And he became somebody new, somebody who now took orders from a new commander. And you see this again in verse 12. He says, I press on to make this my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What an important phrase to throw in there. Like He wants us to be clear. He's not just inventing some personal journey for himself. He's not just choosing his own adventure. He is following the commands of his king and his creator. And he's excited about it. You see, he had experienced what the Bible wants every single one of us to experience. And that is, first of all, the good news that God came to this earth as a man, condescending to leave the glories of heaven and experience life in this sin-cursed, broken world like we experience it because he was pursuing us. He came to redeem us, to change us. And he came as Jesus. He lived in this world. He died on the cross in our place to pay for our sins, and then he rose again to an eternal life that he now offers to share with us. When a person 
places his or her complete faith in Christ, that is like, I'm just banking everything on Jesus for now and for all eternity. I'm going to stop trying to earn it myself. I'm going to trust him. When that happens, we become a whole new person. At least two really amazing things happen. First of all, your sins are forgiven. Which is incredible. Your sins are forgiven. Before God, the slate is wiped clean. You stand as one who is not guilty, which is some language that the Bible uses, a kind of courtroom language to help us understand what's going on. You're cleared of all charges before God, free to be in relationship with your maker again. But you know, something else also happens. You then become part of God's family. God says, you're not just cleared of all charges. I did this to like enter a relationship with you. I'm bringing you back. You are now part of me, my people, my family. So, so your life is now restored to God, the one who made it in the first place, created you for his glory. But in our sin, we run off and live for ourselves. That cuts us off from God. Jesus brings us back into union with God. So our lives now belong to him again to be used by him for his glory. The good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus becomes your savior and also your Lord, your commander, your king. As the Bible puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. You're even the kind of the business transaction language that the Bible uses to try to help us understand some of what goes on with Jesus. His, his sacrifice on the cross for us was like paying a price to buy back a people. We now belong to him. And the Apostle Paul is excited about this. Does that sound exciting to you? To belong to somebody else? Interesting, I bet if we could go around and take a poll and we were perfectly honest, like totally, um, you know, everybody's answer is totally confidential or whatever and just rack it up. Like, how exciting does that sound? That my life is no longer mine, it belongs to somebody else. Some of us would love it, some of us would hate it, some of us would be confused by it. It's a very normal way to respond to that idea. Especially in kind of a modern Western culture like ours, like in the U.S. I mean, think of it this way. Every, every culture kind of has a view of what's What's, what's best? Like, how to find meaning and purpose in life? And if you've ever studied other cultures, especially ones from really different parts of the world, or you've traveled and spent significant time in a culture that's really different from ours, like, you learn that, whoa, some of the assumptions, like the basic assumptions people have about life are totally different than where I come from, right? So I didn't even realize I had certain assumptions about life until I saw how different theirs were. All these cultures kind of have a different view of, of what makes life good and where happiness and peace can be found. Our culture is no different. Ours tends to say, like, you will find um, meaning and purpose when you, when you look inside yourself. Like, we're, our culture is super oriented toward the individual, way more so than, than most cultures, even today. Like most people in the world don't think the way we do, but we're Americans. It's like all about the individual. You're on your own path. You've got to discover truth and, and meaning within yourself. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what you should do. These are like, these are just sort of, they're almost proverbs in our culture. We just throw those statements out and everybody accepts them as true because they're just self-evident to us. Yes, that's the way it is. If this is what you're used to hearing, 
then the idea that someone, maybe even God, would tell you what your life is all about could sound horrible. But what I want us to see is that the Bible is trying to reframe some of our cultural assumptions, as it does with every human culture. It's actually saying that this is great news, that there's a new commander, because God designed life, and so he's the one that knows how it works better than any of us. And the great news is he loves us. He loves us. So he knows that he made us to serve him, to love him, and to enjoy him forever, so we will find our greatest possible joy in doing what we were made to do. That's the experience of the Apostle Paul we're seeing in this passage. I'm excited to pursue his goal for me because he has made me his own, and that's great news. That's what I was made for in the first place. So back to that question we asked a moment ago. Where, where would you say your there is? What, what would an honest and objective look at your life say? I'm pursuing what? And then the question becomes, where does that answer come from? Does it come from within yourself? Does it come from your family? Does it come from your culture? Does it come from God? For the Apostle Paul, it's clear. The end goal that he was aiming for was given to him by Jesus, his Savior, King, and he threw out his old goals that were given to him by his religious community, and when he became a Christian, he accepted God's goals for him. The space between where he was and where Jesus wanted him to be is what defined the course of his life. And that's a journey that he went all out for. And that's our third and final point. Not only did he have a clear goal that came from a new commander, but it led him to a driving passion. And you just see this over and over again in this passage, don't you? The short paragraph. Look at the language. I press on to make it my own. Down to verse 13, I, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's like, it's like he's, I just got this image in my head, this is probably ridiculous, of like, you know, the dog hanging his head out the car window? You know? The car's taking him there, but he just can't, ha, ah, the tongue's flapping, you know? He's knocking his microphone off his ear. The tongue's flapping in the breeze and the wind's in his face, and he's just, ah, oh, I can't wait to get there. It's like I'm reaching and I'm straining, even though I'm being taken along for the ride. That's what he's talking about. The terminology actually comes from athletics. Uh, this was back in the day when, like, the original Olympic Games, these big competitions were very, very popular. So he's using athletic imagery. <clears throat> There's the people that that train hard and, and they're in a race and their eyes are fixed on the finish line and they're trying to get there and everything, every muscle fiber in their body is screaming in pain to stop, but they just keep straining and reaching. I'm going to keep going until I get there. He's like, that's how I approach my life. His, his goal wasn't just an abstract, I have a mission in my life, you know, kind of thing. This was something he was passionate about. Gave him a reason to get up out of bed every single morning. It's interesting to note that he talks about straining to achieve or attain something that he already has. Did you catch that language? It's kind of, it's kind of weird. Look at verse 16 down at the end there. Only let us hold true 
to what we have already attained. I mean, that seems weird, right? You're either trying to get something that you don't have, that makes sense, or you have something so you're no longer trying to get it, that makes sense too. He's talking about striving to attain something that he already has. You see, what the Bible's pointing out here is that being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is not primarily about, like on the one hand, trying to earn our way into God's good graces. That's what we said earlier. Christianity doesn't just call us to participate in a bunch of religious activities. And when you've done them, boom, checkbox, I'm done, I'm good, I've accomplished it. That's like all striving and no rest, right? Because you're always trying to strive for, have I been good enough for God? Did I go to church enough times? Did I make enough good choices to outweigh my bad choices? All that kind of stuff. It's always work, it's always striving, and there's no rest. But it's also not the opposite. It's not all rest and no striving. This is what some people have called like fire insurance Christianity. You ever heard that phrase? Right, it's a sort of idea that if I, if I read the Bible and I understand it and believe it, Jesus died for my sins because of what he did, not what I do. You know, my sins are forgiven. Great. And then some people fall into this pattern of thinking where it's like, oh, so Christianity is like a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I've got my ticket to heaven, so I'm just waiting until I go to heaven, I guess. Like, that'll be great. I'm trusting Jesus. Heaven will be great someday. Now, in the meantime, I've got a life to live, so I'm just living my life. It's like you've got your ticket, and you're just waiting at the station for the train to come take you away to that glorious destination. And while you're waiting, you've got stuff to do. That's like all rest and no work at all. I've already got the ticket. What do I need to work for? Christianity is not all striving and no rest, nor is it all rest and no striving. Rather, the Christian life is one of actively leaning in to what we've already been given by grace in Christ. We rest in the gift and strive to experience as much of it as we can right now. That's the picture. That's the driving passion. So for the Apostle Paul, this, this journey is what his life was all about. It's the thing he thought about, thought about and, and, and strove towards. And, and here's the thing. This isn't just for him. This isn't just for him. It's for everybody who would call themselves a Christian or seek to get to know God. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. See what he's saying? If you're mature in your thinking about Christianity, if you're going to not just casually glance over, yay, Jesus died for my sins, and I'm not going to think about it. If you want to actually think about being a Christian, then you've got to think this way. This applies to all of us. And just in case we needed more clarity or him being more specific, in verse 17 he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on others who walk according to the example that you have in us. See what he's saying? Brothers, all of you who call yourselves Christians, that's not just males, that's a generic, brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us who are following Jesus, he says, you think the way I'm describing too. That's how you should be thinking. And you should follow my example. And if you can't see me or you don't know me, find somebody else who lives this way and follow their example because we're to help each other live with this kind of driving ambition. Ambition. 
All Christians are on the same journey that the Apostle Paul is describing here. It's given to you by the same Jesus that Paul loved and served. So we've seen three things in this passage. There's this clear goal. It comes from a new commander, and it forms the driving passion of his life. We all need to constantly begin a life with Jesus and grow in that life with Jesus. That's the point. The passage is describing a life that is a journey to know and experience God more fully. And the Bible's word for a person who's on such a journey is disciple. A disciple. Uh, that's somebody who, who follows a teacher and seeks to learn from that teacher and have that teacher's worldview become their own. To be a disciple of Jesus is to seek to know God and to absorb as much of God's view of things and experience as much of God's life as we possibly can. A disciple is someone who's committed their life to following and learning Jesus, growing more and more to experience him and reflect him over time. And that's what the rest of this, this series is going to be about here at Harvest for the next uh, six Sundays past today, for the next seven weeks. For nine months now, eight or nine months now, our ministry staff and our elder team have been together investing significant time into kind of getting on the same page and thinking about Bible passages like this one and sort of reasoning together, what is God calling us to? Are we all seeing the same thing and are we leading in the same direction? And we are. This series is designed to really start pulling back the curtains and letting everybody who's part of our church in, in a more direct way, into that conversation. We want to invite you into that conversation. Now, this morning just kind of launches another six weeks where we're going to talk about more, so let me kind of turn the corner toward the home stretch of this particular sermon this way. Even though we're just opening something up, here's some specific thoughts of how this can impact us. How can you lean into this conversation right now. If Harvest is your home church, or if you're considering whether Harvest needs to be your home church, how do you engage with this? Let me suggest two ways, at the very least, two ways. First is to engage in an active way with this series over the next few weeks. That would mean attending uh, worship services on Sunday, in person if possible. That's always much, much better. This is a great season to reconsider uh, whether or not we can be back together in person, connecting with each other and experiencing the same thing together. At the very least, prioritizing attending our, uh, viewing our live stream or, or catching up uh, by video with a service that you have to uh, miss. In a quick nutshell, this is kind of where we're headed uh, for the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about stages in the journey. We're going to break this idea of a journey down a little bit. What does that journey look like? What are the major stages of it? How do I know? Where am I at in the journey? We'll talk about those things next Sunday. Uh, we'll talk about the following week, why we make disciples, why this journey is so important. The Bible gives us so many motivations. We'll look at them. And then in the second half of this series, we'll spend four weeks talking about the major tools God has given us to follow him. We'll unpack each one, take a look at it, figure out how we can experience it. He's given us his people, a local church, and the relationships in it are so vital to us following Jesus together. Secondly, he's given us his word, his message 
in the Bible. We'll talk about that. Thirdly, he's given us his own spirit to live inside us. We can pray. We can depend on him. We can be filled with his spirit. We'll talk about that. Lastly, he's given us a picture of his prize, the end goal in our eternity with him that the Apostle Paul talks about here. That's kind of where we're headed. Every week we'll take a certain passage of Scripture from around the New Testament and draw some others in as well, including Old Testament passages, to see what the Bible says about these things. I want to invite you to engage actively with this so that we're hearing and we're processing together. Uh, Another way we can engage actively is to do this growing one another Bible study. You see a picture of it up there on the screen. I talked about this last Sunday. We have these, lots and lots of them available right now this morning out at the Harvest Book Table. Once our church service is over here in a little while, I'd encourage you to go out to the Harvest Book Table and grab one of these. They're five bucks each. This is a seven-week Bible study that will track really, really well with where we're going in this series. It gives you some simple Bible passages. You read them. It asks you some questions to just think about what you've read and reflect on it. If you've got some background in the Bible, this will be a really fruitful study. Even if you've never really read the Bible, these questions will help you make sense of it. This is a great place to start. You can actively engage in this, which is so important. Because preaching, like I'm doing right now, has always been central to the life of the church for thousands of years. It's so important that God's people gather and hear God's word taught in the same place at the same time so that we're thinking together. That's absolutely essential. But by itself, it's not enough. You have to have it, but you also need to have something else. Because when we gather, it's a passive experience. You can come, you can listen, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, maybe you think it's great, whatever, and get up and leave and not really be changed, right? God's vision for us is that we would come, we would hear his word taught, and then we would get up from that and connect with one another and talk about what we're learning. Sharing with one another hearing other people's insights, thinking about how this applies to us, how this changes our thinking and the way that we live, doing life together. So I'd encourage you not only to grab this, but go through it with somebody else. Write down a few answers, compare notes. Uh, If you're in one of our community life groups uh, or some other kind of Bible study group, maybe just an informal collection of friends, uh, it's not often that we ask the whole church to focus on one thing, but we're asking you to do that, to consider maybe setting aside what you're doing and for the next seven weeks, grab this and go through it together, because as we talk with one another, it makes such a difference. Maybe you're not in a group. You can do this with a spouse. You can do it with a good friend. Um, Meet somebody and say, hey, would you like to get together for coffee for the next few weeks, and let's just compare notes. We'll block an hour a week, and we'll just get together on Saturday mornings or whatever it is, and talk about it together. At the very least, I would encourage you to do this study by yourself. It's a more active step than simply listening. It's engaging. Always better to do it with people. So the first way that you can lean into this right now is actively participate in the conversation. Secondly, very, very time-sensitive, I'd encourage you to come tonight to our 35th anniversary celebration. 4.30 to Harvest Connections, if you're newer to the church, great place for you to ask questions about the church, who we are, what we believe, what makes us tick, anything you want to ask us, you can ask us, and we'll talk a little bit about our heart and how we engage people and how to get involved. Then 5.45, we'll start promptly at 6 o'clock. We've got a lot to cover, so I encourage you to come at 5.45, and we're going to have a great celebration. We'll start in this room, celebrate God's faithfulness. Then tonight, I'm actually going to sketch out several things that we're actively working on right now. Strategies, if you will, if I'm using organizational leadership speech, right? (laughs) I say these are goals, these are strategies that we're going to start pursuing right now as a church to be a disciple-making church. 
Uh, we're far enough in the process that we can lay out some clear goals, but it's early enough in the process that we need our congregation to engage in these goals with us, help us shape them, and start to help us put them into practice. We're going to unfold all that tonight and just celebrate God's faithfulness. Let me close with this. A couple of questions to think about and just reflect on personally. First of all, as we've asked many times in different ways this morning, what, what journey would you say you're on? What journey would you say you're on? As the Apostle Paul looked at where he was now and where he wanted to be, the difference between here and there defined his life. So where's your there? Where is your there? And maybe another question, you could just grab somebody, go out to lunch this afternoon, maybe start kicking these questions around. What tends you to keep you from being fully committed to Jesus' journey? The one that God has for you. Maybe you're like, man, I'm new to this whole Bible and God and religion thing. I don't even know what God's journey is, what Jesus' journey is. It's great. This is a place you can learn and find out. Or maybe you say, and I kind of know what it is, uh, but I'm not sure I'm fully ready to trust Jesus yet. Why is that? It's a great thing to talk about with people. It's a great thing. Maybe I have fully trusted in Jesus, but I'm finding other things come into my life that's making me doubt or second-guess or there's some other issue in my life that keeps me back from him or keeps distracting me from him. What journey would you say you're on? What tends to keep you from being fully committed to Jesus' journey? Friends, the Bible's telling us we all need to continually grow in our relationship with Jesus. And the best news, that's where life is found. That's God's message for you this morning. And this is a place where we can help you find out how to do that and how to pursue him more. Let's do that together, shall we? I want to ask the worship team to come back up here, lead us in music to close our service, and I want to pray for us as we do that. God, having heard from your word, certainly, hopefully, not from me, because my opinions don't matter, your opinions matter infinitely. And so, God, whatever has been said this morning, if there is anything that is not of you, I pray you would just make it go away in our memories. God, as we pointed faithfully to your word, your message for each person here, I pray that you would drive it sharply, clearly in our minds and give us the heart to interact with you and with your word, your heart for us to redeem us, to put us on a course of knowing you better where we can find life. God, thank you for being a God who wants to do that who wants to be in relationship with us. And I pray that myself, for every person here this morning, including the kids down the hall and our kids' classes and the adults who are teaching them right now, our students and teenagers engaging with the realities of going back to school and a pandemic, our adults working, figuring out married life, sorting through life's priorities, dealing with illnesses and stresses. God, we all have so much going on in our lives. Would you reveal to us the there. Would you clarify that for us in a way that is not burdensome, but is life-giving and motivating? And would you make us as a church a place where we constantly help one another reach for that goal and experience the love of a family in the process? For our good and your glory, Jesus, we ask this. Amen.